0: As we begin this section of Joseph's story, if you'll remember where we left last week, Simeon is still being held hostage in Egypt, and Jacob's other sons have returned to Canaan, and they've been given instructions by Joseph to bring Benjamin with them when they return to Egypt. But when they get home and tell Jacob about what is said, Jacob isn't having it. He refuses to allow Benjamin, who is now his new favorite son, to travel to Egypt with his brothers for fear that something might happen to him on the journey. And as a result, a family stalemate sets in because the nine brothers can't go back to Egypt without Benjamin. And Jacob won't even consider allowing Benjamin to go to Egypt. So in essence, Jacob, as we said last week, buries his head in the sand and he just goes about life as if Simeon uh, just was gone. And he just forgot about him and went on without him. That's where we're going to pick it up tonight. We're going to begin reading in chapter 1 excuse me, chapter 43, verse 1. This is what it says. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had, they had eaten the grain that they'd brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man so- solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, by by the way, it's interesting that he's been renamed Israel, but up until this time he's been been referred to by his old name as Jacob. And uh, now it's starting to change in the story and he's referred to as Israel. So when you see Israel or Jacob, it's the same person. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? It's kind of a funny question. (laughs) So why'd you tell him? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? We told him uh, what we told him was an answer to those these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you. And also our little ones. I will be I will be a pledge of his safety, excuse me, of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Even your father, excuse me, then their father Israel said to them, it must be so if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm, a little honey, uh, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took this pre- this present, and they took double the money with them. and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. So this ongoing stalem- stalemate uh, in the family was broken by the most elemental of all things, hunger. And so over the an indeterminate period of time, we don't know how long they've been back there in the land of Canaan. We don't know how long it took them to consume all of this grain, But over some amount of time, the famine has continually gotten worse. And the supplies that the brothers had brought from Egypt had run out. And and so Jacob needed food for himself, for his family. So he suggested to his brothers that they go, excuse me, to the brothers, to his sons, that they go buy some. And so Judah stepped up as the spokesman for the brothers and reminded Jacob that they had been solemnly warned not to return without their brother Jacob. Now, there are reasons, obviously, why Joseph would want to see Benjamin. Some are obvious, some might be a, a little more of a supposition, but certainly we I'm sure he wanted to see his younger brother, which is the most obvious reason. It had been many, many years since he had seen him. But perhaps, in addition, we kind of touched this a little bit last week, but perhaps he also wanted to make sure that Benjamin was well and that, that his brothers did not have the same designs on Benjamin's life, that they weren't. Out to get him the way they were out to get him. And if the the nine brothers returned to Egypt with no Benjamin, and then they tried to explain it away, uh, you know, explain his absence by an early death or some, you know, some sad story or whatever, then Joseph would probably have learned everything he needed to know about his brothers. And Jacob, as, as was often the case, when Judah told him, hey, we already know if we're going to go, we got to take Benjamin. We told you that before. He reminds him of that. And Jacob, as is often the case, re- reacted with self-pity. That funny question to me. Why did you tell him you had another brother? As if, as if even if, you know, J- Judah said, well, they, he asked what we were supposed to do. We didn't know he was going to say, well, bring your brother back. And, and so, uh, Judah responded by just saying, hey, you know, this guy showed a lot of interest in our family. He asked these questions. We just answered his questions. There was no way possible that we could anticipate that he was going to say, Okay, when you come back, bring your brother with you or you don't you won't get to buy any more grain. And so then Judah just pointed out the facts and just said, listen, this family is going to die out. I know you don't want Benjamin to go because you're afraid he's going to get killed. But frankly, we're all going to die, including Benjamin, if we don't get some food. He just laid it out there, and he asked his father to send Benjamin with him so they could get some more grain. The very, very survival of the family was at stake, and, and that was more important than, than maintaining a protective attitude toward the, this adult child, Benjamin. So to help ease the situation, Judah offered himself as a pledge of, of Benjamin's safety. Safety, He said, if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. That's a pretty, pretty powerful and significant statement. Uh, He's willing to guarantee Benjamin's safety. And that's a major, major point in this story, because remember, Judah, and we're going to come back to this a little bit. Judah was the one who came up with the idea to, to sell Joseph into slavery. Judah was the one who said, hey, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. But we're going to see tonight that this is no longer the same Judah. He had undergone a a radical change of heart so that now he personally guaranteed to protect Benjamin for his father's sake. So Judah just finally told Jacob bluntly that they needed to get on with it. He said, hey, we could have been there and back twice if we hadn't been dragging our feet here. And Jacob, seeing, seeing no other option, finally caved in. I don't know. I don't know exactly how he would have said it. But if he'd been in in modern America with the way we speak, I perhaps it would have gone something like this. So, oh, all right. If, if you have to do it, then then do it. But here's the procedure I want you to, to follow. And then he re- reverted to another old pattern of his and he ordered them to take gifts, things that, the, that he all, I asked them to take. They were all native to Canaan. And, and, and the idea that he wanted them to take gifts to Joseph kind of strikes me as a little comical, as if a tiny little present like that is going to make any difference to the governor of Egypt, you know, the second only to Pharaoh, uh, who's, who's just massively wealthy. You, you know, it's just kind of, uh, you know, funny to think that. But why was he doing that? Well, because if you remember, years before, that's what he had done with his brother Esau. He sent gifts ahead of him. And it worked and so he's thinking it might work with this egyptian grand vizier too so jacob now i want you to think about this he's still trying to fix things himself he's trying to do things himself he's leaving god out of the picture he could see all kinds of schemes you know hey let's send him these gifts let's get this extra money let's put all this stuff together we can maybe maybe we'll we'll be able to buy some favor there but what, what he did not say was, he didn't say, look, boys, we don't know what all this means, but we do know that we're confused and we need God's help. Let's trust God for protection and insight on this. Let's ask him to give us direction on what to do. He could have at any time, but there's no record of that. But finally, he does make one statement of, uh, with at least some movement toward a, at least a guarded faith his own hunger pangs persuaded him and he could resist no longer. And he said, take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. May God Almighty, and this is the statement, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother in Benjamin. Now, honestly, if he would have stopped there, it would have been wonderful. Because that's a great statement. As the brothers headed toward Egypt, they would have had the the promises and the words of Jacob singing, uh, talking about El Shaddai, the almighty God ringing in their ears, saying, God's going to provide for us. God's going to see this through. And it would have been a wonderful statement. But he he said too much because after that, he said, as for me, if I'm bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. And he just left that statement of fatalism out there. So anyway, on that, the 10 brothers struck out for Israel, excuse me, for Egypt. So. Remember now, Simeon is still being held hostage in Egypt. And now Jacob's other sons are returning to that land with their youngest brother, Benjamin. Their mission to Egypt is fourfold. They want to show their good faith to Joseph. They they want to prove that they're not spies by returning with Benjamin. They want to ransom Simeon, get their brother out of jail. And then they want to buy more food. And if they can do those four things, then they will have had a successful trip. Um, they're also with them bringing back the original money that had been returned to their sacks on their first visit. You remember all that story? And in fact, what they've done, they have doubled it. So they're going to pay back what was left in their sack, and they're going to bring enough money to buy more grain on top of that, along with several special gifts. Well, finally, they arrive in Egypt full of questions, full of concerns. I mean, will the Egyptian governor really release Simeon? You know, what, will, will he look with favor on them for returning the money? Or are they going to be in prison just like their brother was? Will he let us go back to Canaan? They don't know what's going to happen. These men are trembling with anxiety. They did not know what awaited them in Egypt. Uh, they, they didn't know if they'd ever even find Simeon. They had no idea if this guy was going to keep his word. They don't know if he's still there. They don't even know if he's still alive. They have no idea what's going to happen when they... St- Finally, once again, stood before this royal ruler. On the other hand, we may wonder what Joseph thought as he's there in Egypt waiting for his brothers to return because they didn't come back right away. Are they going to come back? He may have been wondering, are they, are they going to come or, or do they just consider Simeon collateral, collateral damage because that certainly would have been fitting with the character of the way they treated him. So let's look what happens when they get to Egypt, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, this is a, a, an unbelievable statement. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought them in into Joseph's house and given them water, they, and, and they had washed their feet, and when he had uh, given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your father, excuse me, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that was an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn, according to his birthright and the youngest, according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were given to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with them. All right, so. When the brothers arrived in Egypt, Joseph saw that Benjamin was with them, and immediately he ordered his steward to take them into his house and to prepare dinner for him. Now, there's, there's no doubt that this was a planned move. This is what he had planned to do if they showed up with Benjamin. And it's really not unreasonable to conjecture that if Benjamin had not been with them, that Joseph would have broken off contact and ended the whole matter there. Because Benjamin... Was the linchpin of this whole plan. He's the linchpin of everything that Joseph is trying to trying to learn. Joseph will surmise much of the current attitudes and intentions of his brothers based on Benjamin and how they interact with him and how they treat him. So, they take them to their home and and they're going to have he's going to have lunch with them. He's going to have dinner with them, but far from setting their mind at ease because they're coming in here anxious. What are they going to do? What you know? Are they going to accuse us of stealing that money? And instead, they get ushered into Joseph's house, and and they're treated very nicely. And how many of you know? Listen, when you feel guilty and somebody treats you nicely, you 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 get suspicious and you think, why are they being so nice to me? And so far from setting their mind at ease, the invitation just ratcheted up the brothers' fears, and they and they at first suspected that Joseph they said he wants to assault us he's going to he's going to beat us up he's he's going to uh, seize us and put us into slavery he's going to seize all of our donkeys and it's all because of that money that was that was in our sacks when we got home i mean they they well remembered the first visit and it was definitely not a pleasant affair for them they had been accused of being spies one of their own had been taken from them bound and placed in prison and then further demands were, were made on them as conditions for further trade, which was bringing their youngest brother with them. And doubtless, all of this and the nice the treatment was very perplexing and extremely disturbing for their brothers. So they go to Joseph's house and they're afraid, frankly, that it's a trap. Um, and they all believe this was related to the first trip, that it was about that money. So because it was about the money, they actually did something I feel it was pretty wise. They went directly to the steward right off the bat and they said and they said we want to speak to him about the money and they did they went to him to talk about the money just to say hey we want you to know what we found in our sacks we don't know how it got there but we didn't put it there we didn't take it and and to prove to you that that's the case we've brought it back for you and so the, the the steward responds peace be to you do not don't be afraid he said, your God and the God of your father had put has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. He, he alluded not to the gods of Egypt, but to the brother's God and to the God of their father. This can be no other God than Yahweh God as of the Old Testament. And this would be very puzzling to the sons of Jacob here because as far as they know, they're dealing with a native Egyptian who did not worship the God of Israel. And, and of course, from our perspective, we know that Joseph worshiped that God and we know that he has probably told this steward about this God. He probably even told the steward what to say if that subject came up. And so uh, it, for them though, it was very confusing. They were in a foreign land in a heathen nation And now from the mouth of someone that they consider heathen, uh, their God is being honored and praised as the one who has done good to them, as the one who has blessed them. They don't see God in it, but even this, you know, from that perspective, this, this steward from Joseph's steward is the one saying, hey, this is just God's blessing. Now, remember in the previous chapter, Jacob interpreted the events surrounding the the detaining of Simeon and the accusation of being spies and the demand for Benjamin, he took all of that as proof that God was against him. But the truth was, God was for him. Even even in the darkness, even in the pain, God was still on his side. And not not only that, but God was for these brothers in the same way as he was for Joseph. Reminds me of the words of an old, old hymn written by William Cowper. I don't know. Some of you will have heard of it. But he wrote this. The name of it is God Moves in a Mysterious Way. But he writes, writes this in that song. He says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. That in the middle of the darkness you can count on the fact that there's a God looking down who smiles in love on you. I love that. And here with these brothers, there is mercy and kindness and grace and provision through all of these events, but but they can't see it. These men felt guilty for what they had done to Joseph and that guilt just ate at them. Probably all of us at some time in our life have been in that place where we felt guilty and it just was eating us alive. And they looked at these events and they thought to themselves, we are experiencing the judgment of God. And the reason they thought that is because deep down they knew they deserved the judgment and, and punishment of God. But guilt has kept them from seeing God's hand of grace in their lives. And it always does. Yet the unmerited favor of God had come in abundance to them. Well, Simeon was brought out, reunited with his brothers, and the steward then took them over into Joseph's house, a palatial building, no doubt, and washed their feet. He fed their pack animals. And while they got their little present ready for Joseph's arri- arrival, they, they had feared assault and yet they were being treated as dishonored guests, and and that was just disconcerting, disconcerting to them, to say the least. Well, Joseph arrived, and they gave him the present and bowed down to him uh, before, on the, to the ground before him, and he inquired about the father, and they said, "Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive." And they bowed again, prostrate to the on the ground, and now. Remember last time 10 brothers bowed and it wasn't quite the fulfillment of his dream. But now all 11 sheaves are bowing. And Joseph must have been overwhelmed with a sense of fulfillment. Joseph looked up and as he did, his attention was caught by Benjamin, his only full sibling. Joseph sees Benjamin for the first time in at least 22 years, probably more than that by now. Benjamin's not a child anymore. He's a, he's a full-grown man. And still addressing all of them, he said, is this, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And he looked to Benjamin and said to him, God be gracious to you, my son. And when he said that, by this point in time, he was so deeply moved at the sight of his brother that he just collapsed inside. He could no longer control himself and he rushed out to a private room and He wept. I like how Charles Swindoll describes this moment. This is what he wrote. Can't you imagine the scene? All of a sudden, the handsome, bronzed leader of millions has rushed to his bedroom and collapsed in sobs. All those years passed in review. All the loneliness, all the loss, all the seasons and birthdays and significant occasions without his family. It was too much to contain. Like a rushing river pouring into a lake, swelling above the dam. His tears ran and he heaved with great sobs. All of a sudden, he was a little boy again, missing his daddy. Without this interlude, he was not going to be able to maintain the charade that he had carefully constructed up to this point. He He wanted them to think... He didn't want them to know who he was, and he didn't want them to see his emotion. I mean, why did Joseph not just throw his arms around Benjamin in that moment when all of that emotion started welling up inside of him? And why didn't he just throw his arms around him and tell him all at that point in time, hey, it's me, I'm your brother Joseph. Well, he clearly did not think that the time was, was yet ripe for that disclosure. He had a plan. He had to learn some things. He needed to be certain that his brothers had really repented so that there could be reconciliation. Remember, we talked about that. Uh, I think it was last week. All the weeks run together to, with me. But, uh, but you can't have reconciliation without repentance. You can have forgiveness because that's inward, but you can't have reconciliation of relationships because that's outward. And yet, and as of this point in time, he had seen little evidence of that. So uh, uh, also, in addition to that, the, the, re- the fact that Joseph went to weep gives us further clues that even at this point, as to his intentions toward his brothers, because although he had been angry and accusatory and in his outward demeanor toward his brothers, his true demeanor was one of grace and kindness. It's obvious. It's clear. He's not looking for vengeance. So Joseph, after he wept, he washed his face, composed himself, came out and he ordered the food served. He sat alone as Egyptian custom dictated. And then uh, the, the Egyptians all sat at another table, his servants and stewards and everybody. And then his brothers all sat at a separate table. That's what Egyptian custom uh, dictated. They considered the Hebrews, basically really anybody that was a shepherd, they were, they were looked down on and they didn't want to uh, eat with them. They didn't want to be seen with them. And so, so he sat them down and, and they were told exactly where to sit. Every chair All right, Reuben, you sit here. Simeon, you sit here. Down the line, he goes. And and they go through and they're told, every every one of them is told where they're supposed to sit. And and they're absolutely amazed because as they're sitting there, it slowly dawned on them that they were seated in the exact order of their ages from the oldest to the youngest. Now, Now, you understand, these are grown men born in fairly rapid succession, and it would have been impossible for a stranger to guess their ages accurately. And yet here they are, oldest to youngest, without, without an error. Author and scholar Henry Morris ca- explains the reason behind their astonishment. This is what he wrote. After they were assigned to seats at their table, the eleven brothers noted a remarkable thing. They had been seated in order of age from the eldest through the youngest, If this were a mere coincidence, it was indeed marvelous. One can easily show, and I'm glad somebody did the math on this because I can never figure it out. Get this. There are no less than 39,917,000 different orders in which 11 individuals could have been seated. (laughs) And, And they're seated in that order. Evidently, this man knew a great deal more about their family than they had realized. Or, 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 or he had some kind of supernatural power. He he really could see things that nobody else could see. They had no answer. They could only wonder about it. I, I, I mentioned this last week or the week before. I, I just feel like Joseph all along kept dropping these little hints. You know, little clues that they, they weren't able to put together because the answer was so far outside of anything they can imagine. But I think this is one of those little hints that he's saying, Who else would know your birth order, fellas? Then another thing happened. Food was carried from Joseph's table to theirs. And they were all given food, but Benjamin was unaccountably given five times as much as anybody else. Now, I don't know about you and your family, but in my family growing up, (laughs) if my brother got more than I did, there was a ruckus. You know what I'm saying? You know, I mean, there's just, it's like, hey, that's not fair. That's not fair. What was Joseph trying to accomplish through this? Was, was he simply overwhelmed with joy at, oh, it's my brother Benjamin. And he just kept lavishing food on him. Or was there something else going on here? Here's what I think what was, what was happening. I think this was all part of Joseph's plan uh, from the very beginning. Joseph had started a plan in motion that would almost duplicate the situation that he had when he was sold into slavery. And the first part of that plan was to duplicate the special favor that he had received by giving special attention to Benjamin. You see, what's happening with Benjamin is a, is a, it's very similar to what Joseph had. He had outward favor shown, shown to him. And now Benjamin, he's getting all this attention, all this extra food right in front of other, the, all the other brothers. And, and, and surely during this time, you know, in the past, these men would have responded to overt favoritism with some level of disgust and jealousy. And surely Joseph was watching their facial expressions. He was studying their body language. He was trying to see their every reaction they had to see. How do they respond when Benjamin gets special favor. However, what we read shows us that God indeed was working on transforming their character because it says, and they drank and were merry with him. No sign of jealousy. No sign of of, uh, any kind of disgust. No sign that that they were worried that Benjamin got more than them. They just sat and enjoyed the meal and enjoyed the time together. So it seems they passed the jealousy test. So Joseph's like, okay, okay. It's time to move on to phase two. So Joseph then made ready for the final test to prove the honesty and loyalty of his brothers and to give them the opportunity to repent. Let's read about it in chapter 44, verse one. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent uh, were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? Excuse me, you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does... My Lord, speak such words as these. Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die and we shall all uh, also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Which, which is without a doubt, exactly what Joseph told him to say. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. The cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. So now Joseph took step number two in testing his brothers, and he tested them in a very severe and difficult situation. Joseph instructed his steward to replace his brother's money in the mouth of the sacks of grain that were going back to Canaan. Is it a repeat of the kindness he showed to them previously when they came to get grain the first time. Which, by the way, when you talk about in the mouth, apparently from the way it it took them a while to discover it, what they did was they, they hid the money down a little bit underneath the grain. And that's why when they had the first stop on the way home, when the guy was getting feed out for the donkeys, He found the money after he dug in it a little bit. So it's the same thing. But this time Joseph gave gave some additional instructions. The steward was told to take Joseph's silver cup, and one that that he said that that he did divination with. Now there's no evidence he did divination. I think it was all part of the plan to make them more afraid. Uh, But he told them to place that in the mouth of the sack of the youngest brother, which, of course, was Benjamin. And at first light, the 11 sons of Jacob started the journey home, no doubt massively relieved at the success of their mission. They're thinking, whew, that was a lot better than the first time. However, they'd not gone far when at Joseph's order, Joseph's steward overtook them and accused them of stealing the valuable goblet. And the brothers were indignant. They, they, They have not only been accused of theft, but they have been accused of tremendous ingratitude, essentially, They were accused of spitting in the hand uh, that had been extended in friendship. They knew they were innocent of the charge, so... They protested their innocence very boldly. They, they reminded the steward about the money that they had found previously, squirreled away in their sacks from the first trip, that they had returned along with more money and gifts to show their good intent. They said, Why would we steal money? We, we don't need the money. Well, obviously, we brought it back to you this last time. Why would we take anything else? And the brothers, declaring their innocence, say, they make a very bold and brash statement. They say, They're so confident of their innocence. They say, all right, well, whoever is found guilty of such a crime should be put to death, and and then the rest of us, all the rest of us brothers, we should become slaves to Joseph if this is true. That's how confident they were. But Joseph had other ideas. Acting on his behalf, the steward proposed something more appropriate, and he just said, no, no, and I'm sure I feel confident this is from Joseph himself because it fits uh, with setting up the scenario. He says, he who, who is found with it will be the servant, will be the slave, and the rest of you will be innocent. So the search commenced with the eldest and it ended with the discovery of the goblet in Benjamin's sack. Well, what do they do now? This, the choice right now was momentous. This is where Joseph is leading them, forcing them to face this very situation. Would they leave Benjamin as they had left Joseph years before and go home without him? They had an opportunity to be rid not only of Joseph, but now of Benjamin and put an end to their father's hated policy of favoritism. Or or had they gone so far in their repentance for what they had done to Joseph that they would stick with Benjamin, come what may. That's what Joseph needed to know. Robert Sachs gets it exactly right when he says this. Joseph has now decided to put his brothers to the final test. He will place them in a position where they will be strongly tempted to treat Benjamin as they had treated him. The point of Joseph's trial is that repentance is only complete when one knows that if he were placed in the same position, he would not act in the way he had acted before. Boy, if I tell you what, we need to understand that definition of Repentance. A lot of people think repentance is just saying, oh, I'm sorry. And, you know, just please forgive me. But repentance is being so sorrowful of it that you not only confess it, but that you allow God to change your heart in such a way that you don't live that way anymore. You don't act that way anymore. Where if you are faced with the same situation and put in the same position, you will not act the way you acted before. Well, the brothers... (laughs) they finally make a great decision. They make a great decision that come what what may, they would not abandon Benjamin as they had abandoned Joseph long before. They, They, in fact, tore their clothes as a sign of despair and mourning, and they returned with the steward to the city. Now, they were declared innocent. They could go home. They came back to the city of their own accord. The ordeal was not over, but they had made the right decision. They would stand, all of them would stand with their brother Benjamin. Then for a final time, they're brought before Joseph, the governor, who was waiting for them in his house. He knew they were coming back. He knew what was going on. He knew the whole scenario. He knew whose whose sack the cup was in and all of these things. And once more they come in, they prostrate themselves on the ground before him, and Joseph faced them. Verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came, interesting also that you see the evolving leadership of Judah of the clan, because now uh, you see it says Judah and his brothers. So it's inferring the fact that Judah is taking more leadership in the family now. And, And Judah has obviously taken more leadership in speaking with Jacob. So you see these changing dynamics within the family. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination, which means they can tell the future? And Judah said, What shall we say, my Lord? Or what shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also whose hand the cup has, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Joseph looked at his brothers bowing before him and said, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice? Oh, well, I don't know how that got in there twice. <laughs> okay. Go in peace to your father. But it, the scripture got printed, printed twice in my notes. So Judah, acting as leader for the group, spoke up. I I think I love the way the NLT translates what he said because it helps us in our modern English understand the gist of what he said to to Joseph. He said in verse 16, Judah answered, O my Lord, what can we say to you? How can we explain this? How can we prove our innocence? God is punishing us for our sins. My Lord, we have all returned to to be your slaves, all of us, not just our brother who had your cup in his sack. So we see Joseph or excuse me, Judah um, uh, appeared increasingly aware of God's involvement in this whole drama. He says God is, is punishing our sin we are guilty, he says. They're guilty, guilty of terrible cruelty, guilty of selling their brother into slavery, and for all they knew, for guilty of contributing to his death, guilty of perpetrating, perpetrating a terrible fraud and a lie to their father. They were not guilty, however, of stealing uh, from the governor or committing fraud by not paying for the grain. But he, but he is declaring, and he's recognizing God's hand in this situation, that this is falling upon them because of their actions, that they are guilty. What's interesting here is that Judah actually consigned the entire group of brothers to share in the judgment against Benjamin. As Benjamin would become a slave, so they would all become slaves. They will share in his accusation. They will share in his suffering. And Joseph then fa- caused them to face the crucial choice a second time. He said, "No, hey, no. Why? I'm not going to do that. What kind of man do you think I am? Only the man whose hand the cup was found in shall be my servant. Only the guilty one is going to be my slave. The rest of you, go in peace. You're free. You're innocent. Go free. You're out. Go ahead. Get out of here." In other words, he said, "There will need be no. There will be no collective judgment here. No collective punishment. Only the guilty Benjamin is going to stay." What? What must have Benjamin be, been thinking? You know, he, 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 he knew he was not guilty. So, I mean, why was Joseph being so rough on him? He, he must have guessed by now that the whole thing had been engineered by the Egyptians, that he had been framed. But why? Well, this was crunch time. The, the band of brothers was once more free to go. But would they? Would they, under continued pressure abandoned Benjamin to slavery, just as they had once abandoned Joseph to slavery. The past was rising up to face them. Well, Judah then steps up and delivers one of the greatest, one of the most moving speeches in all of literature. It's the longest speech recorded in the book of Genesis. In it, he proves his worthiness to be the leader of the tribe, and, and he also Shows a superior ability to move hearts and minds as he pleads with the governor of Egypt for the life of his brother. Judah began to speak, and it is the speech of a broken, repentant, contrite man. Just, just over two decades earlier, he had been a heartless, callous man, and he had in devising a scheme to sell his brother for money, but Judah was no longer that man. Listen to his speech. Verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes upon him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant's... Uh, My father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol or the grave. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father all my life. Now, therefore, listen to this. Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. Jacob suffered the loss of Joseph for many years. Jacob went without true closure, without any certainty to Joseph's fate. There had been no body to bury. And over the years, these brothers had seen how their father had grieved and suffered the loss of of one whom he loved dearly. And perhaps watching that, seeing that suffering uh broke the hard brittle shell of anger and hatred toward Joseph perhaps it softened their hearts and their consciences maybe it made them long for redemption maybe it made them yearn for a, 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 to 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 yearn to right a wrong that they felt could never change but the bottom line was whereas they had been all too glad they to rid themselves of Joseph then losing Benjamin now was more than they could bear Judah could not lose Benjamin. He could not watch his father grieve again for Benjamin as he had grieved for Joseph. He could not watch his father die in grief. Judah himself, and this is part of the change, with maturity you begin to see things and understand things. Judah himself by now had buried two sons of his own. He understood now the pain of losing children in a way that he didn't when he had, when he had sold Joseph into slavery. And now he looked on his father in a whole different way and his heart was softer and things had changed. So Judah did the only thing he knew to do. He began by explaining the situation carefully. He reminded Joseph of the history of the loss of one brother and explained the impact that it had on their father. And he explained all of this to Joseph as he pled for the freedom of Benjamin and Judah through the sacrifice of laying down his own freedom, sought to save Benjamin. And I could hear him in, in, in my mind, in, in my imagination, saying, please, please, he begs, take me instead of Benjamin. I cannot go back home without him. I fear what, for what would happen to my father. Do you realize who is saying this? This is Judah. These words are coming from the same man who more than 20 years earlier proposed without a hint of remorse. Here comes that dreamer, Joseph. Let's kill him and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. This is Judah who shortly after that cold-blooded proposal rationalized, what will we gain if we just kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let's sell him to the slave traders instead. Judah, who had spent years not fearing his father's response to the death of Joseph had come to see the love of his father the love that his father had for his son and he offered himself as a substitute beautiful picture of what would come much later judah ended up not being a substitute for benjamin but one of his descendants became a substitute for all of us jesus and judah offered himself offered to make himself a slave in order to save Benjamin because he loved his father, Jacob. The selfish had become selfless. Let's re- read what happens next. Chapter 45, verses 1 through 15. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life for the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for, for you many survivors. So it was not you that sent me here, but God, he has made a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all the, his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. hurry, And go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see me, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. The test was over. The transformation of Judah's character Representative of the other nine offending brothers was complete. Real repentance had been reached and therefore genuine reconciliation could be found. So Joseph, seeing where they were spiritually and in their repentance, he cleared the room of all the Egyptians, all the stewards, all the servants, all the slaves, sent them out. And only the 11 brothers were left with him. I can imagine they're thinking, what's going to happen now? What's going to do to us? And suddenly Joseph's tears poured down his face to the amazement of the men who watched in astonishment. He had wept twice before, but here they saw it for the first time. And he wept aloud with such exceptional intensity and such lack of restraint that the sound carried beyond far beyond the room and the Egyptians heard it. And even Pharaoh's house heard it. And then he spoke. He spoke. And, and to their total surprise, the brothers heard him address them in their own language with the stunningly unexpected words. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And they shrank back in terror. and Could not speak. They were stunned. They, they, they were speechless. They were terrified. They they began to tremble. Was this some sort of diabolical trap? Could this possibly really be Joseph? What's going on here? As they stood there trembling, he said to them, come closer. Now the Hebrew verb used there refers not to just spatial proximity, but it refers to an intimate closeness. It's a term that was occasionally used for coming near for the purpose of of embracing or kissing someone. It's not the common Hebrew term used for merely coming near or walking up close. They came closer to Joseph. And this is what he said. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. That did it. That did it. That statement cleared away any lingering doubt if there was any that the speaker was Joseph. Because he had just revealed the best-kept secret in Canaan. Surely, none of the brothers had ever told anybody what had happened that day out in the fields near Dothan. Surely, they hadn't shared with anybody their horrible deed of selling their brother into slavery. The only people who knew were those ten brothers and Joseph in all the world. How could this man know the truth if he were not? Their long lost joke, Joseph. How would anyone else have known that they had sold their brother as a slave? And Joseph immediately put his brothers at ease about the matter that was uppermost in their minds, because now they're convinced this this guy is really Joseph and, and he has complete power over our lives. We sold him into slavery and now we're at his mercy. And he's trying to put their fears at ease. And he stated the the fact of their deed. He didn't lie about it, didn't soft sell it, but he once encouraged them not to be distressed because he told them it was God who had providentially sent Joseph to Egypt to preserve life in the midst of a famine that was going to last for another five years. You see, in all of this, Joseph had a clear sense that God had been active behind the scenes. He had been using actions that were God had been using actions that were intended for evil and using them to fulfill His purposes. What a lesson for us today. That God can take even the actions of other people intended for evil and still use them for His purpose and still use them for good. When, when Joseph, excuse me, what Joseph saw through his life, from the time of his slavery, through the false accusation, and through the imprisonment, and into the, his rise in, into power... What he saw through all of his life was that God was for him. Every time Joseph had a serious life reversal, God showed blessings on on his life. He showered him with those blessings. And Joseph got the message that although he was in a different place, he was not in that difficult place alone. What a powerful lesson for us. That we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We may walk in the darkest times in our lives. We may be in a difficult place, but just like Joseph, we're not in that place alone. God still showed him favor. All of the events leading up to this moment during his Egyptian sojourn came together to provide Joseph a sense of clarity as to the plan and purpose of God. In short, it all began to make sense because now with this horrible famine going on and his family being saved because of where he is, now it all became clear to him. And he said, ah, now I see God's plan in this. Now I i couldn't see it when I was a slave. I I couldn't see it in the prison. I couldn't see it in all of those other times, but now I see it. Now I get it. He had clarity of this vision for his life. But I think it's important for us to remember, and I can't stress this enough, that the clarity of Joseph's life situation is not given to all Christians who suffer trial and affliction in this life. Not everybody gets to reach that point in their life where they say, oh, now I understand. We, when it comes to God's work in our lives, We There are many, many times we have to just simply walk by faith until we see Jesus face to face. There are going to be things that we have walked through that we won't understand God's purpose in it until we see him face to face in heaven. The simple fact of the matter is for the Christian, we are not called to understand or to grasp the reasons of God's plan or the reasons for the circumstances that he allows into our lives. But we are called to trust in His sovereign plan for our lives. We are called to trust that God is good, that He is for us, and that He works all of the events of our lives out for our ultimate good and for His own glory. And listen, some events are excruciatingly painful in in a variety of ways. And we need to know, faith does not dull that pain. It still hurts deeply. What faith does, is it points to the fact that pain and suffering have a purpose. That God's not going to waste my hurt. There's a purpose in it. That's why Joseph could look at his brothers and say, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. On top of his forgiveness and reassurance, Joseph made them an offer they couldn't refuse. He urged them to return and bring their father to the land where they could enjoy relief from their uh, barren experience and, and, uh, and make sure that they had plenty during the time of famine. There was five more years coming of it. And then after this invitation, and Joseph wept when, with Benjamin, whom he, by the way, first time he said his name. Again, another confirmation, this must be Joseph, because they had never told, it was not recorded anywhere, they had never told Joseph what the name of their younger brother was, but now Joseph says, uh, actually says, you have seen me with your own eyes. My brother Benjamin has seen me with, my, with his own eyes. You know it's me. And he wept with him, and Benjamin wept with him, and as years of pent-up feelings and release uh, uh, found release in an intense catharsis. Rachel's sons had found each other again, and their joy was immense. Joseph, we're also told, wept over his brothers. But it's not said that they wept over him, or that they wept with him. We're just simply told that there was a great deal of conversation about which we're given no further detail. Duh, I'm sure there were all kinds of conversations about, Oh, Joseph, you know... Uh, I really wasn't in on that whole thing. I, I was, I really didn't want to do that. Or, you know, there was no conversation. We don't know what it was, but, but, but the fact that they didn't, we are not told that they wept with us kind of implies maybe that they were still a little wary of Joseph and that they would be for some time to come. In fact, we're going to see in in, in a later study, how at one point in time when Jacob died, that's when they said, now it's coming. They still were afraid of him. But I want to close with this, and, the, and, and I want to give you three truths about God's sovereignty and our attitudes, because Joseph was carried through all of these things and, and understanding the sovereignty of God, understanding that he had no control over his circumstances, but he had control over his attitude in the midst of them. I want to see, help you see the, the, uh, the, the relationship between God's sovereignty and us accepting his sovereignty and our attitudes. The first thing is this when I'm able by faith to see God's plan in my location, my attitude will be right. Joseph said, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me, God sent me. When I can grasp that in my life and say, God put me here, God put me here. Not until you can relax and see God in your present location, will you be useful to him. If you're not uh, willing to see God's hand in your location, you're always going to be waiting to do something until you can get to the place where you think you're supposed to be. Second, when I'm able by faith to sense God's hand in my situation, my attitude will be right. I don't begin the day by gritting my teeth and saying, why do I have to go through this situation again today? Why do I have to stay in this place, in this situation? Instead, I believe, He made me the way that I am and he put me where I am to do what he has planned for me to do. I don't wait for my situation to change. I don't wait for my situation to get better before I put my heart into the work and do what I can. It's called blooming where you're planted. And third, when I'm able by faith to accept both location and situation as good and as as given by God, that God's in that even when there's been evil in the process, then my attitude will be right. What I can say with Joseph, but God meant it for good. God will bring good. God is with me even though it hurts. Then I become a trophy of grace. Then I become a beacon of light in a dark world. Then I become a person that, look, that people can look at and say, how can you live with this kind of hope this kind of peace in the midst of what you're walking through and i can say because god is with me god meant it for good you bow your head and let's pray together father we do thank you for the fact that you are with us every moment of every day and not just on the good days but god we're, we're even more grateful that you're with us in the hard times, in the difficult places, in the pit, in the cistern, in the prison, in the darkest times of our lives. You're there. And Lord, when we walk through those times, we know, God, that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord. And we know that there are times when you, when you even lead us into a wilderness. There are times when you allow us to go through things, Lord God, Because you have a greater plan and a greater purpose and people that you want to touch and lives that you want to change and you want to shape us and you want to mold us and you want to bring your ultimate good into our lives. And sometimes, God, the only pathway through that is through the desert. And God, I pray that in those times that we would remember that we are where we, we are where we are by the sovereign hand of God, that we are in the situation in which we find ourselves by the sovereign hand of God. And instead of just letting that knowledge become something that we just resign ourselves to say, well, this is just fate, that we will say, no, this is God working. He is going to do something. He's going to bring something about. He's working in me. He's working through me. And I see his good and his goodness in the middle of this, even though other people have been creating more problems because of evil decisions they make. Yet, God, I see you in this. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to live that way, that our attitudes will be right, and and when we do so, that we would glorify your name, that we would reflect the glory of Jesus, and that people would see the hope that we have, even in the midst of, of darkness, and that Jesus would be glorified in our lives. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.